0: Hello left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently.
1: Let's go. The problem is I wanted to invest like an entrepreneur. I wanted it to be exciting. I wanted it to be cutting edge. The reason those home run stories are so famous is they're the exception. Investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. True investing i found is often kind of boring. Investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. That's coming right
0: up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors?
2: Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at $25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left-fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest.
3: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community.
0: This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We're very pleased today to have Paul Moore with us. He is the founder and managing partner of Wellings Capital, a real estate private equity firm focused on mobile home parks and self-storage facilities. He's also an author, a podcaster, and a regular contributor to Bigger Pockets, and an experienced real estate investor. And one more thing I found out, um, he's an Ohio State Buckeye like me. So uh, welcome, Paul, to the uh, Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Jim. Thanks. And uh, so the way we like to start here is just by getting a little bit of uh, your history, your journey, how you uh, how you started and how you got to where you are. I know that's a big question, but if we can start there, that'd be great.
1: Well, that's kind of lengthy at my age, but uh, yeah, I started out by getting an engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And uh, just because I was great in math and science didn't mean that's what I really should have been doing. I should have been in some kind of marketing or investments. So I got an MBA at Ohio State, and that was in 88. Uh, Went to Ford Motor Company for five years. Had my own company for five years. Uh, was finalist for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year a few times, and then sold that to a publicly traded firm. Moved to Virginia, started investing in real estate. I got really involved in active real estate investing. You know, flipping houses, and found out that you know every time we flipped a house, we had to go find another one to flip. I wasn't really building long-term passive wealth. And then we started flipping waterfront lots at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. And again, found out I had to go find another piece of land every time. And then I started an online real estate firm that's still running right now, generates leads for realtors at Smith Mountain Lake. And again, we have to keep finding a new lead and a new buyer or seller every time. But over those years, you know, I also built some houses and did some other things like that, did a small subdivision. But over the years, I wanted to know where, how do I get into commercial real estate? It seemed daunting. Like, where was the on-ramp? Who would I trust? How would I get started? Would I need millions of dollars to do that? I didn't know. And we ended up building a multifamily facility in North Dakota, and then another one next door to it in the early 2011, 12 range. And Learned about commercial real estate, still didn't understand what I want to call the magic formula of commercial real estate that makes it so powerful. But I ended up getting launched into multifamily investing. Wrote a book on multifamily, and that's how I got on the road to where we are now.
0: So the magic formula—I got to ask what that is.
1: You know, if you invest in residential real estate, if I flip a house, or you know, let's say I buy a house for two hundred thousand. In Dublin, Ohio, North Suburb of Columbus, there, and I fix it up beautifully, and I just absolutely go to the max with it. You know, I finish the attic and the basement add-on, and you know, spend four hundred thousand fixing it up, and now I got six hundred thousand in it. I'm hoping to sell for a profit. If that's a three hundred thousand dollar neighborhood, honestly, I probably won't be able to sell that for even break-even because residential real estate's based on comps. And I think that we all inherently understand that. But commercial real estate's not at all. It's based on math. And of course, the math is that the value equals the income divided by the rate of return. Another way of saying it is that the we're buying, when we buy or sell commercial real estate, it's valued based on the cash flow stream. And that's the net operating income divided by the cap rate And so if we can increase the net operating income, we can effectively force appreciation. And if we can somehow compress the cap rate, and there's a couple ways to do that sometimes, then we can also force a lot of appreciation. And then when we add safe leverage in, it just makes it all the better. And so commercial real estate, and I think one of the reasons the Forbes 400, the wealthiest people in America and around the world invest in commercial real estate, is this formula, whether they understand that or not, that you can actually force appreciation. It's very, very powerful. I've got lots of examples of this, of how this has been done and how it's really impacted my investors and my career as well. Can you explain
0: what you mean by compress the cap rate
1: and also force appreciation? Yeah. So again, the formula is value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. And the cap rate is the rate of return that you would expect on an investment like this. In fact, it's the average rate of return without leverage for this type of asset in this condition, in this location, at this point in time. And so the cap rate used to be like 8 or 10%. People would expect an 8 or 10% return on their real estate. Well, as that number has shrunk, as it's compressed down to where it is now, and it's sometimes as low as four, sometimes as high as 6%, four to 6%, let's say, that means that the numerator in that equation is the net operating income. The denominator is the cap rate. Therefore, if you shrink the cap rate, in other words, you're expecting a lower return on investment, you're raising the value of the asset. Simple example, if I have a million dollar asset that produces 100,000 a year in net operating income, not including the debt service. That's a 10% cap rate. Now, if I say, okay, I want to make this $100,000. I really want to make that much a year. How much am I willing to pay for that? Well, now people will pay at a five cap or 5% cap rate. They'll now pay me 2 million instead of the million I said before. Let's say I bought it for a million 10 years ago. They'll pay me 2 million for that income stream now. Like I said, commercial real estate's about buying an income stream. And so they pay a five cap. In other words, 5% cap rate, $100,000 divided by 5% is 2 million. That's the value of that asset now. You talked
0: about forcing appreciation. What, what does that
1: mean? Yeah, so forcing appreciation would be just if you can compress the cap rate, which I haven't even given you. Let me give you a quick example of how to compress the cap rate. You buy it from a mom and pop seller who says, yeah, I'll be happy to sell it for an eight cap, an 8% cap rate. And that's actually fair, let's say, based on the condition, the location, how poorly it's run. You might be able to buy that for an 8% cap rate. But if you can make it beautiful, fix it up, clean it up, make it into sort of a franchise, if you will, like, you know, just make it run professionally, then you can maybe sell it for a 5% cap rate. So you've done two things there. Number one, you've compressed the cap rate, and that's a lot, by the way. If you can go from an eight to a five, if you did the math on that, that is a massive, I mean, you're basically more than doubling your equity if you're using leverage. But you've also, you've forced appreciation. In other words, you did things that made the property appreciate. The main way to do that, that we're focused on that denominator, but the easiest and most obvious way to do that is to increase the value of the numerator, to increase the net operating income. Here's a quick example. Last January, I went to Louisville, January 2020, and we did due diligence on a mobile home park. It had 311 spaces, Uh, had 50 vacant spaces. The costs were very bloated. They They were paying for the utilities out of the pockets of the owner. The owner hadn't been there in at least five years since her husband had passed away. She lived two or three states away. And overall, it was just incredibly under, you know, it's just under managed. Oh, the, the rents had gone up in years and all the rents of the neighboring mobile home parks were about 35% higher. So our operating partner bought it. We invested in it for $7.1 million. That's three and a half million in equity and about three and a half million, a little more than that in debt. Okay. So about 50, 50, pretty safe. The operator went in and he raised rents some, not a whole lot, because you don't want to do that in a mobile home park immediately, but he raised rents a little. He actually dramatically cut operating expenses. He passed the utilities back to the tenants, which is how it's done in almost every large park anywhere, especially all the neighboring ones around that. And then he started to fill up those vacant spots. So he dramatically increased the numerator of our equation. The net operating income. Then he was able actually to sell to someone who was a long-term holder. So while he bought it at a 7% cap rate, I think he sold at a five. So he compressed the denominator as well. And he didn't actually plan to sell it, but he was hoping to get it to a value of 13 million in three years, up from 7.1 million, which would be a massive feat. Well, he actually got an offer of 15 million on it after owning it for only six months. And so he sold it, We closed right before Christmas for fifteen million. The uh, IRR, the internal rate of return on that, was three hundred forty-seven percent. In other words, we more than tripled the investors' money uh, in just less than a year. That's forcing appreciation, Jim.
0: Right, and and that makes all the difference. You're not waiting, and that's what I like about commercial real estate as well. Is you're not waiting for the market to determine the value of your property, but you can determine the value of your property by doing the upgrades and the things you need to, or cutting expenses, and, and that's the beauty of commercial real estate. Right. So you mentioned mobile home parks, um, but you started in multifamily, and now I, from what I understand, you're doing mobile home parks and self-storage mainly. So can you talk a little bit about the switch from, you know you started in the flips, you did some development, then you did multifamily. Why go into self-storage and mobile home?
1: Jim, I was a certified shiny object chaser for years. I was, I wanted to put serial entrepreneur on my business card and I thought that was a positive. And I really don't think it was. At any rate, I told my dear wife, I'm going to stay in multifamily. I'm writing this book about multifamily and I did. And I planned to stay in, but multifamily became so overheated that I, I mean, we were being outbid by 10 or 20% on deals that, you know, we knew that the person buying it, well, at least we thought we knew. Was overpaying for this and we weren't willing to overpay. I'm in my mid-50s and not willing to take those risks and didn't want our investors to face those risks. And so we wanted to find asset types that had more intrinsic value. Intrinsic value in this case is when there's tremendous unmined capability or capacity. And for example, in that mobile home park, you know, there was all these things they were doing. Wrong, or at least that they weren't doing to maximize income and increase value. And so we wanted to find asset types like that. But the, it boils down to finding asset types that has a lot that have a lot of mom and pop owners and operators. And mobile home parks, out of the 44,000 or so parks in the country, we believe 85% are owned by mom and pop operators. And of self storage, of the 50,000 or so self storage facilities in the country. Uh, we believe about half are owned by mom and pop operators. They don't have, they don't have the knowledge, the resources, or the desire to increase income and maximize value. So you can pay them top dollar. I mean, the 7.1 million was probably more than that lady ever dreamed she'd get for that park. Maybe you could even argue more than she deserved based on how poorly it had been run. But we can go in and we can tweak things, force appreciation. And increase the value dramatically. We just weren't seeing that in multifamily, Jim. And even though I have found a few deals over the last eight years, in multifamily, we liked overall, we find so many more deals with so much upside in self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks, things like that.
0: Through Welling's Capital, you're doing funds instead of individual assets, correct? Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, like all of us, you know I, I had some I mean our first deal when we flipped a house in 2000, we made a lot of money, but then we lost money of two of our four of our ne- two out of the four of our next deals. You know that principle holds true. Sometimes you get a bad investment. and when we talked to our investors and we did a lot of soul searching, we realized we could probably give them a lot more safety focusing on safety first, profit second, we could give them a lot more safety by diversifying. And so we decided to get a diversified portfolio to give to our investors. So we diversify across asset types, geographies, operators, and even strategies. And by doing this, if we have a few bad investments, that gets washed out in these other investments, like the one I just told you about in Louisville, that really upgrades the whole group. I mean, at the same time we were doing that Louisville deal, we had actually invested in a deal in St. Paul, Minnesota, right in the epicenter of all the riots. And of course, we had acquired it eight months before the riots. And so that was a really, really tough deal. And it was actually sold just recently for around break even. That wasn't a good deal for our investors, but it's part of a fund that has the 300% IRR in it as well. And so that's why a fund is so powerful.
0: You invest in other people's, other operators' deals. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you vet an operator or a sponsor and then also how a, a passive investor like myself or people in our in our yeah. group would vet a sponsor?
1: Yeah, Jim. So we spend a lot of time, we think about, you know, would we want to invest with them? Do they fit our asset type? Have they been in business, you know, usually since before the great financial crisis around 2008? Do they have a management team that's in an office where, I mean, a centrally located, cohesive team? Do they put a lot of their own money in? Do they put their skin in the game? We fly out to see them. Uh, my business partner's on a flight to Boston as we speak, doing due diligence on an operator. We drop in to, we meet them at their headquarters. We also drop in on them, uh, you know, and uh, their different, uh, like we drop in on their facilities unannounced. Uh, We do all types of things. If I had to boil it down, I would say this 300-page guide by Brian Burke called The Hands-Off Investor would be a really important resource for all of your people to have because this gives a very detailed overview of how to vet syndicators. Yeah,
0: that's actually um, one of our favorite books in in our group. Um, I recommend that to a lot of people as well because that really does just, it spells it out every section about what you need to do to find not only sponsors, but but deals and, and everything else. So I guess you, you deal with passive investors quite a bit. What, what are some of the mistakes you see them make or, or what are some hints you can give them to kind of save them from maybe some of the mistakes you've made?
1: Yeah. Well, I had a podcast for a couple of, actually four years called called How to Lose Money. And the reason we did that was to explore all the mistakes, failures, pain, errors, losses, of successful entrepreneurs on their way to the top. And so we had people like Gino Wickman and Mike McCallowitz and others telling their stories of pain and loss on the way to where they are now. And it was really helpful. One thing that came out of that and one thing that definitely came out of my own story was the difference between investing and speculating. When I had a couple million dollars in the bank in 1997, I was 33 years old. I didn't know the difference between investing and speculating and I thought I'm a full-time investor now. But truthfully, I was more of a full-time speculator and the reason was I didn't I just didn't understand this and I should have. I should have known. I had the information available. The problem is I wanted to invest like an entrepreneur. I wanted it to be exciting. I wanted it to be cutting edge. The problem with that is most of those deals. The reason the angel investor groups, you know, diversify across a bunch of deals is I think they say four four out of five go south, but one will hit a home run. The reason those home run stories are so famous is they're the exception. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. True investing, I've found, is often kind of boring. Paul Samuelson is the first economist to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He said investing should be boring. In fact, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. That makes sense.
0: You know, we talk about that in our group as well, the uh, investing versus speculation and and some of us have you know, a small amount of money that we then put in the, the speculation because that is where you get, it's exciting, it's interesting. Every once in a while, you get a big home run. But if you want to make money and, and build independence and build wealth, you know, I totally agree. You got to invest and it's going to be boring and the checks just keep coming in slowly, but o- over time, you end up winning, right? Right. It's so true. So in your podcast, I heard you say you'd, you'd learned there are three main reasons that people fail in investing. Can you talk about those reasons? Is that the speculation versus investing yeah. or is there something else?
1: Yeah. So one of them is the investing versus speculating. I mean, I, I, again, I think that when I put what uh, my friends and I put like $1.1 million down in a hole in the ground and expected 10 or hundred times as much oil to come out, we were speculating because zero came out. Now, at the same time, a hundred million could have come out and that was possible literally. And so that, you know, again, I'm not against speculating, like you said, but put a small amount of your money there. If you keep playing double or nothing with all your money, you'll eventually land on nothing. And then what will you have left to double? And so that's one. A second error we saw people make, and this is going to sound really contradictory, but that's how it came out in the uh, different shows. A second error we all know, and that's quitting too soon. Don't give up. Persevere. Keep going to the end. Never quit. That's the message we get on the posters on our office walls, and that's a great message, and that's really true. And some of our operators told these amazing stories about how they never quit, and then they eventually hit gold. That was great. The third lesson was quite strange compared to the last one, and that was make sure you quit early. What? Wait a minute. We thought it was never quit. No, these people, some people said, we've got to quit early. A guy was telling me, he said, How do you make a million dollars in the restaurant business? I said, I don't know. He said, start with two million. And uh, he he was telling us how he got into a restaurant operation. And we were telling, and I was telling the story about how I started a wireless internet company. I'll just tell you my story instead of his. And we had uh, $400,000 invested in it in North Dakota. And right from the first month, stuff started going wrong. We found out that the radios didn't work in 40 degree below temperatures in North Dakota and all kinds of things. And so we should have pulled the plug on that right away. Instead, we burned through eight years and all $400,000 and never made a profit. And so if we would have pulled the plug on that within a few months, it would have been painful, but we would have been able to give ourselves and our other investors back three of the 400,000 and we could have went on our merry way instead of wasting all that time and money. And so the question is, how do you know, is it one of those or one of these? Am I supposed to persevere to the end or am I supposed to pull the plug really early? And the answer is not obvious, but it comes in the form of wisdom. It comes in the form of having great people around you, great wisdom, years or decades of experience, a little gray hair, and the opportunity to know, is this one of those rabbit trails that we should never have been on? Is this just going to be a failure? We're fighting uphill. And then we should quit early. Or is this going to be something that's going to be enduring? We just have to persevere through the trials. It takes wisdom to know the difference.
0: Yeah. And and that talks about the power of a community or a network to help you understand and make those decisions, especially for, you know, our group has a lot of new people. And so relying on each other and learning from each other is the way that you figure out, am I in one of those, I need to get out quick? Or am I in one of those that I need to persevere. So that's an interesting way to look at it, I think. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Also in your your podcast, you've talked about partnering with the IRS to make money while paying almost
1: no taxes. Can you talk about that a little bit? That sounds like clickbait. Oh yeah, that's (laughs) right. I said it. Yeah. (laughs) No, seriously. uh, The joke is, so I I was just with Robert Kiyosaki and uh, 200 other people in Belize with the Real Estate Guys Radio. We had a great time, but Robert, as he always does, was talking about the cash flow quadrant. And you know, the upper left is you're an employee, you've got a job and you pay 40% in taxes. The lower left quadrant is you are a solopreneur or an entrepreneur and you pay 60% in taxes and you own a job. The upper right quadrant is you have a company and you pay 20% in taxes or you have a brand. And then the lower right quadrant is you're a real estate investor, passive investor, hopefully, and you pay zero in taxes. So we are always amazed at the power of commercial, but all real estate, uh, with the right tax strategy in place to save on taxes. I mean, last year I had a very large gain the afternoon of December 31st, and I was scrambling all the way into New Year's Eve trying to donate a little more money to charity and trying to buy this tax write-off thing and all this, and then I said, wait a minute, I mean, actually, it took me a few months to realize it. But like in February, I'm like, wait a minute. Why did I worry about all that? I mean, I wanted to donate to charity anyway. Don't get me wrong. But I'm a real estate investor. I'm not going to pay taxes, most likely. Not much anyway. And that's true. Commercial real estate is a powerful, powerful way. If the if the American public knew how little, and they, how they're starting to realize, I think, commercial real estate investors pay in taxes, I think we'd have another tax revolt on our hands.
0: Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started
2: in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started Tribevest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly, and that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast, and it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So, yes. TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy and it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives.
0: You invest in a fund, and, and so in our group, we've had a lot of conversations lately about state taxes, because if you invest in a fund, you don't know necessarily which states you're going to be in, and you could end up having to file taxes in, in multiple different states. Can you talk about how, how you manage that and how you think of that when you're when you're going into a new investment? I mean, do you, do you think, well, if I have to do three di- different sets of tax returns in three different states, that's going to eat away at my returns, or how do you manage that?
1: No, it's true. That's definitely one of the disadvantages to investing in a diversified fund. And if that bothers you, listener, I would say don't invest in a fund because there, you know, I mean, we have 20 some states we're involved in, and the K1 might be 45 pages. Now, that being said, though we're not tax advisors, and Jim, I assume you're not either, I will say that every CPA, tax strategist, tax advisor has told us that investors typically only need to file in a few states. In fact, last year, I think we filed in, like my partner and I, at, with the advice of two separate, actually a bunch of tax separate tax advisors, uh, only filed in a handful of states because you only really need to file in certain situations. According to them, that's not what I'm saying. I'll say this too. And if you do your main return, let's say your main tax return costs $1,000 your state taxes should only be 50 to $75 per state. So even if you're doing five states, you're only talking several hundred dollars more and you're talking about the potential of pretty significant cash flow and gains and tax savings uh, in exchange for that.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And the, the question then is, how do you analyze that before you make the investment? If you're a passive investor and you're looking at the fund and they're not sure where they're going to invest, right? Because typically it's a blind fund. So how do you analyze that ahead of time? Or do you just think, well, it's only going to cost me 50 or 100 bucks per state tax return. So I like the investment. I'm just going to do it.
1: Yeah, I think that's just going to be up to everybody. I think that everybody should assume worst case that they might have to file in all these states and you know, ask if they're willing to do that. We've got an investor in Sacramento who said he couldn't believe anybody complained about it. He said he always files in every state for every syndication, every fund he's in. He Apparently he's in a bunch. And he said it costs him $11 per state. I said, 11? He said, yeah. He said, I it myself. I think it was called freetaxreturnusa.com. That's probably not exactly right, but something like that. He said, you file your tax return for free and then you pay him 11 bucks each to file state returns. And um, he said that's how he's been doing it for years. And uh, so I don't have an answer for that. That's one of those questions that we just don't feel like we answer very well. But I can tell you that our investors in general in funds that are doing well aren't complaining about that too much. Another problem with funds, I'll tell you this, is that our K-1s are a little bit late. Think about this. If the K-1, let's say we're investing with five different operators. And four of them get us their K-1s in early March, but one gets us their K-1 in like April 1st. And one of the largest funds we really love say, hey, expect your K-1 in early April. Well, we don't invest with Origin, but we really like them. And we think that they're a great company. Well, if one of them gives us their K-1s, you know, in like April 5th, we have at least two more weeks on top of that to finish our K-1s, which is a consolidation of all of our operators. And so the K-1s can be a little bit later in commercial real estate in general, and then even a little bit more than syndications in funds. So if you if that bothers you to file an extension, don't invest in a fund.
0: Yeah, that That's good advice, I think. In our group, we have a few tools that, that we use. One is a deal analyzer, and it's basically for multifamily. And we have, I don't know, 30 different metrics. A lot of them you know, we got from the book you showed, Hands Off Investor by Brian Burke, but we don't have a whole lot for mobile homes or self-storage that are specific to those asset classes. Can you talk a little bit about maybe a couple of different metrics that you look at in self-storage and mobile home parks that you analyze when you're doing a deal?
1: Yeah, they're quite simple. We had about 30 as well when we were doing multifamily, uh, including net population, migration, minimum town city size. Number of property managers in the city, or at least, you know, that were available if our first choice went bad later. But in self storage and mobile home parks, it's quite different. And we could spend a whole show on this issue. But I'll just tell you very quickly I wrote a book on self storage. Bigger Pockets is publishing it this October. It's called Storing Up Profits Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self Storage. And we talk about those metrics in there super quickly. We want to see a density of square footage of self-storage divided by the number of people in a certain radius be less than the national average. And that's just a big swag number. But the national average is seven or eight square feet of self-storage per person in a, let's say, three-mile radius. I say let's say because if it's in an urban area like downtown LA, it might be a one-mile radius. If it's a very rural area, It might be an eight mile radius, but let's say a three mile radius for a typical, you know, Dublin, Ohio, Hilliard, Ohio, something like that. You know, just your typical suburb, three mile radius. We want to see about seven square feet per person or less. Now, if it's like two square feet per person, that's a great place to invest because it's undersupplied. We also want to see it be on a main road. We also want to, you know, with a high traffic count, we also want to see it be very visible on that main road, you know, not behind a hill or below a Walmart. And we also want to see an average income in that area of at least the average for the entire area. So in other words, if the average household income is 60,000 in the area, we want to see at least be around 60. It doesn't have to be super high, uh, but we definitely don't want it to be super low. For mobile home parks, it's even easier. We want to be within five miles of a super Walmart. We want to be in a town of 5,000 or more. I can't believe I'm saying 5,000 because in it was like half a million or more in multifamily. But 5,000 or more in the town, near a super Walmart, not have private water and sewer. Those three are the minimum metrics. And then we start looking at whether they're park-owned homes or individually owned, the number of empty pads, the lot rent, all those type of things.
0: And park-owned versus um, owner-owned, which do you prefer?
1: Mobile home park, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, almost anybody in the mobile home park business prefers just leasing dirt. So we want those homes to be tenant owned. Now, if they're, let's say it's a hundred pad mobile home park and 20 or 30 are owned by the park, that's doable as long as we have a reasonable belief that we can sell those 20 or 30 to the tenants as soon as possible, because we want those tenants involved. Mobile homes is one of the worst investments I've ever made. I've bought four mobile homes over the years, and I could tell you horror stories about how poorly they went. Mobile home parks, on the other hand, is probably the best investment I've ever made. Leasing dirt beats leasing mobile homes all day long. I agree with that. That makes sense. So when we were talking uh, before I started recording, you
0: mentioned your, your big why. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. You know, Jim, I found out about six years ago that there is a massive problem with human trafficking in the world. I think the world's waking up to this, but I did a little calculation. Did you know if you took the record, not the average, the record profits, Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, added those record profits together, tripled that number, that's the approximate revenues being generated by human trafficking every year. And I'd like to believe that if I was alive in the 1800s, I'd be an abolitionist fighting against slavery. And if I would have been an adult in the 1960s, I'd have been fighting For civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. This is slavery, and it's happening right under our noses. So, Wellings Capital is formulating a plan to where investors who invest with us, everyone who invests, we're going to free a slave. I don't want to say like in their name, but they're going to basically, we're going to out of our pockets, take our piece of our profits, connect it to that investment, free a slave, and then we're going to let that investor know hey, here's some other opportunities for you to learn more about how you can help fight this huge problem. That's great. That's really great. Can you tell our our listeners maybe how they can get involved? I'd say the simplest thing would be for them to go on YouTube or online and rent the movie Nefarious. That's N-E-F-A-R-I-O-U-S. Nefarious. It's put out by Exodus Cry. And then check out exoduscry.com. They're doing stuff to try to convince governments to change the law convince the public to change their attitude and also to free and rehabilitate people that are trapped in slavery
0: well that that's great I will put that all in the show notes and I appreciate you sharing that with us the last question I usually ask is can you give our listeners a, a podcast that you listen to um, hopefully real estate related but it also could be other just you know your favorite podcast or two
1: yeah I would say the real estate guys radio is certainly a great one and then uh, the bigger pockets podcast and the bigger pockets big business podcast would be some of the ones and those are pretty well known to all of us
0: absolutely those are all on my playlist for sure well we appreciate you being here if people want to contact you what's the best way to do that
1: they can go to my website wellingscapital.com that's w e l l i n g s wellingscapital.com and if they want a free five-day course on getting involved in commercial real estate investing, especially passively, they can go to wellingscapital.com slash resources.
0: Okay. Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Jim. It was a real honor to be here, man. Thank you.
0: I enjoyed my conversation today with Paul. One thing that really stuck out to me is how he looks at commercial real estate. It's about buying an income stream and working to increase that. And I really think that works into those of us who are investing for cash flow. That's what you're doing, you're buying an income stream. But even if you're investing for appreciation, you're buying and trying to improve the income stream so that you can get a better sell price at the end or so you can refinance. So I just thought it was a really interesting look at commercial real estate. He also sees significant opportunity in self-storage and mobile home parks. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're managed and operated and owned by what he calls mom and pop or smaller operators. So there's a lot of consolidation that can happen there, which gives an opportunity to operators who want to come in and buy those up, package them, and then sell them off to a REIT or, or a, a larger operation. And he was transparent about some of the disadvantages of funds. And that's one thing I liked about Paul is that his model is... To invest through funds, but he's also honest about, look, state taxes might be an issue. He doesn't think it is. He has workarounds, so it doesn't cost him a lot, but he was transparent about that and willing to address it rather than just uh, brush it off. So that was pretty good. And also, investing versus speculating. We've been doing a lot of talking about this lately, and he really boiled it down to the difference is safety of principle, right? When you're investing, your principle is relatively safe. When you're speculating, it's not. And that's why for me, I am not as much into the stock market as I used to be because I don't believe there's safety of my principal, And that's speculation to me. And I thought it was nicely said by Paul. He also discussed some of the metrics he looks at when evaluating deals. And this is something that I think for our group left field investors, our deal analyzer, we're kind of missing self storage, mobile home metrics. So for him to come up with a few, that's really helpful. And we're going to probably incorporate those in our tools in the future. And finally, I enjoy hearing people talk about their why, why they're doing what they're doing. And his was pretty compelling. He's trying to help stop human trafficking. So some of the numbers he gave were pretty amazing. And you don't realize what a big problem this is. So I think it's fantastic that he is working against that and gave our, our listeners some information that, that uh, they could look and, and read and research. So I appreciated that as well. Again, great conversation with Paul. We'll definitely do it again.